technology. I am Bert Love. And I've got a very interesting-looking uh, uh, engineer. <laughs> of course, uh, my co-pilot, uh, Ryan Ozawa, is off to the big island, taking Katie to uh, college. So we're here with our guests, and I'm solo. I'm solo flying. We'll kick off the show with a couple of news guests. Uh, Rod, uh, Rod Hinman joins us by phone from the Big Island to tell us about the Kona Science Cafe. Then J.D. Gu is uh, here also with uh, uh, Mike King from Ikezo, and we're going to be talking about the new Go Hawaii mobile app. And, of course, uh, finally we'll talk to researcher and author Christy Wilcox who will share how venoms work as a defense mechanism and how these biochemical toxins are created in the first place. And always we welcome your comments and questions as part of the conversation. And can, you can give us a call or tweet. We're following it on Twitter. First up, I want to welcome Rod Hinman uh, by phone from the Big Island. He's on the line to tell us about the uh, Kona Science Cafe. Welcome to the show, Rod. Ah, oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Bert. Mahalo for having me on. Sure, yeah. Um, You've always got some interesting me... things going on over there, and uh, I know you were telling me that uh, you got some interesting uh, guests coming on your program yeah, uh, coming yeah. up real soon. So just for background for those of your guests who might not know, the Kona Science Cafe is a, a monthly presentation and networking series for people interested in science. Yeah, great. So um, what do you, what do you uh, have kind of lined up? We got... Um, in we had two things. Just one briefly, I want to mention um, coming up in September, the Natural Energy Lab. They've got their new uh, building. They just got renovated, and we're going to have a thing there. But an incubator building. So we're going to have a thing there about that. Um, but the thing I really want to talk about is coming up this month you know, in 11 days. Um, we have the crew of High Seas Four. We're going to be making a presentation. Are you familiar with High Seas? Yeah, so uh, that's uh, Kim Binstead's project uh, over on the uh, slopes of, I guess, what, Mauna Loa? Mauna Loa, exactly. And, and yeah, uh, the, I think the last uh, cohort yeah, the last cohort of okay. folks just came out of there, right? Uh, not quite yet. They're oh, coming okay. out on um, Sunday the 28th, the day before our event. And they've been there for a year, locked up in a 1,200-square-foot habitat uh, with their email has been delayed by 20 minutes to simulate the speed of light traveling from here to Mars. And um, they're going to come and tell us about um, their experiences and what that might mean for future Mars missions and maybe also what they've learned about being an Earthling. So, so, in a way, away from Earth. So, Rod, uh, so tell me, you, you said they co- they're going to come out on the 28th and your event is on the 29th. They're going to just go right right from their, the habitat right <laughs> onto your, your uh, <laughs> just, event? Just about. I think they have a couple of other things lined up and we're in the evening, so they probably have something to do during the day. But um, we'll have to see their significant others and things. Um, well, I guess it's not yeah. it's not quite as you know uh, drastic a re- uh, reacclimation as maybe returning from Mars or something. So it's like walking out of the habitat and maybe heading down to your uh, facility. Yep. So um, are you gonna <clears throat> are you gonna have them all come on your show? All, all three <clears throat> of them, yes, are going are going to be there. Great. Uh, that's the plan. And then uh, I know Kim uh, recently put the word out that she is looking for applicants for the next uh, cohort, right? Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> well, you know, I I um I, I think I'm I'm past that uh, that age group, but uh, I know there's a a bunch of folks out there that are interested in in perhaps participating. Are you putting? Are you getting the word out in your community as well? Uh, a little bit, yes. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So, um, so what else? Uh, what else you got on the lineup over there? So that's that's the um, that's the one for um, for August um, Monday, August 29th, at 6 p.m. at the National Energy Lab. And then, um, and then coming up in September, near the end of September, um, we'll have one again at the Natural Energy Lab. But, uh, this will be their, uh, their new incubator building, sort of showing off the building and some of the, the services that they're going to have for companies that want to come into the incubator. Oh, that's great. So, uh, and you're going to be featuring folks from the Energy Lab to talk about the uh, the new incubator in mm-hmm. September? Um, people from the Energy Lab and also... Um, each PDC has um, has a person over here um, who will be in that building, and uh, the small business development uh, network. Chilo has a person here, and, and so um, they'll be there to like uh, to talk with people who are interested. Well, that's great. So, uh, so Rod, I mean, how many folks uh, you know do you get showing up at your events? It varies, um, and it's always a surprise. Uh, probably typically thirty people. That's great. So, you know, this is this is going on. It's a small town, so uh, yeah, that's good. And I'm, I'm hoping a fair number more will be interested in, uh, in hearing about Mars. Well, y- Mars. yeah, you've been you've been uh, maintaining this uh, weekly, I mean, a monthly science cafe event uh, for the last uh, several years. I mean, it's a that's yeah, a great it's been five uh, years now. Yeah, it's a great uh, effort on your part to really kind of pull you know pull people together and have uh, have them. Uh, participate and kind of showcase the things going on over there. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds good. And so where can people find out more about, uh, you know, the Kona Science Cafe and where can they uh, sign up to, to attend? You can go to konasciencecafe.org or they can follow me on Twitter at Rod Hinman. Very good. We'll put that up on the show notes later on tonight. Thanks, uh, thanks Rod, for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, next up, we got uh, J.D. Gu. She's the Director of Marketing over at the Hawaii Tourism Authority. And, of course, Mike King from Ikezo, which looks very familiar to a Mike King that I had on last week. (laughs) And and we'll find out why he's on two consecutive weeks. There's a new app called Go Hawaii. It's a mobile app, and uh, we want to have J.D. and Mike tell us about it. Welcome to the show, J.D. and Mike. Thank you. Hey, how's it going? Now, J.D., uh, at HTA, so the Hawaii Tourism Authority, um, they've done a number of different uh, online, you know, sort of online presence things. And uh, I think there was a mobile app before, right? I mean, was is this the first time there's a Go Hawaii mobile app? This is the first time. Okay, so... First mobile app. So give me some of the background thought process that, that went into deciding that HTA wanted to have a Go Hawaii mobile app. Sure. Um, you know, both of our CEO, George Skeddy, and the COO, Randy Baltimore, joined HTA about a year ago. And both of them, from day one, made it clear to us that collaboration, innovation... And the utilization of technology is the key to our success as an organization. Mm-hmm. So this is just one of the examples you know, uh, for this. Um, we officially launched Go Hawaii app on 
August 8, very auspicious date. For, uh-huh. You know right. that, eight, right? Eight, yeah, eight, eight. <laughs> you know, Chinese not culture. Quite, not quite as good as 8 8 2008, but it was pretty good because 8 8 2016, right? Yeah. I mean, 2016 is yeah, yeah. A plus 8. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> At 8 o'clock, we officially announced. Very good. <laughs> yes. So okay, so <clears throat> what is it that the app actually does? And this is a this is a native app, right? I mean, which is differentiated from a web app. So as a as a native app, I mean, it runs on iOS, it runs on Android. But what are some of the features that w- are part of this uh, Go Hawaii app? Um, our goal for this Hawaii Go Hawaii app is to provide one stop shop, mm-hmm. one stop mobile uh, reference guide for all travelers with trustworthy, fast, convenient information while you enjoy all islands. Mm-hmm. Now, the kind of information that uh, I notice, it's not, it's not so much about, uh, well, there is some you know, sites to see and some special events, but more importantly, there's a lot of safety information on there as well. Yes, definitely. Um, safety is very important to us. We want our safety, uh, visitors to be safe. Mm-hmm while exploring our beautiful islands. So in this app, we utilize interactive, engaging, interesting illustrations to convey safety messages in water activities, road safety, outdoor recreations, um, also disaster preparedness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, um, Mike, I I mentioned earlier that it's a mobile app versus web app. Is that that correct or is it... it yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah, that I think that that's kind of a good way of describing it. So what we actually did is we used web technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, we used a, a system called Ionic that allows us to actually write and develop the entire app using HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. What most people that are web developers or have any experience with the web are familiar with, but. We use a, a system through Ionic that allows us to actually deploy and build out native versions for iOS and for Android that allow us to modify uh, the versions for each one and kind of provide uh, unique and enhanced experiences for each native environment. Mm-hmm. Now, again, um, we had you on last week because we were talking about Design Hui and, and something that is coming out of uh, Ikezo, and, and you were here talking about design. Right. And so Ikezo is the developer behind the Go Hawaii app. Is that, is that correct? Correct. So um, uh, the engagement basically started with uh, 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 Ikezo working with uh, the HTA team to establish kind of a creative direction, utilizing all of the, the uh, existing uh, destination content and safety information that they really wanted to, to make sure that visitors had access to. And so once we had a, a strategy about how we wanted to present that using kind of the animated, illustrated characters, uh, then we uh, deployed a, a, a nice kind of interface for being able to kind of uh, navigate back and forth from all of that information across different languages, mm-hmm. and then uh, worked with our development team to basically put together a system that allowed us to deploy it in native versions for, for both iOS and Android. Now, J.D., when you, I, I, I noticed the, the app has some really cute graphics, cute uh, figures. What, what was the process by which you went back and forth with Ikezo <clears throat> to come up with some of those characters? I mean, uh, how many iterations did it take to actually get to that, that point? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> oh, you mean it wasn't like... I mean, Mike no. makes it sound like, you know, everything that he does is beautiful. So. 
It is a beautiful, and the process, you know, it's a beautiful process in mm-hmm. the way um, our team and their team, we're going back and forth, and we try to make the f- app really fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, vital information um, for safety, for travel, but we want to make it fun interactive, engaging, enticed visitors to want to use and explore the app. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for the characters, yes, uh, <laughs> from the the color of the cal- characters, their, um, the dress code, uh-huh. you know, how they look, we went back and forth and really spent time on it. That's great. So, so from your side, uh, Mike, were there a lot of, I mean, how many designers were kind of involved with uh, the Go Hawaii app? So this actually utilized our entire design team. So um, from the beginning, I worked with uh, uh, JD's team on the marketing department to kind of help establish the initial creative direction with figuring out how we were going to to tell a narrative with their content. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we utilized uh, additional designers on our team to be able to kind of uh, develop the brand and figure out what the overall uh, uh, look and feel was going to be. And then we have additional designers that were working on the interface design. So putting all of those brand elements together and then making it functional. And then we had uh, a a third designer working on animation uh, and coming up with all of kind of the the character kinematics Mm -hmm. and then uh, additionally we had myself and another developer working on kind of uh, the the back end experience so putting together the mobile app as well as developing the the multilingual uh, uh, process that allows us to kind of deliver content across different five different locales Mm -hmm. now JD uh, what is the audience I mean who do you want to download this app. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's great for, for locals to take a look at it just to see, you know, what is being promoted in terms of uh, Go Hawaii. But who do you actually want to have download this app? Or visitors from around the world. So then, the, of course, the next question mm-hmm. is, how do you get that message to those visitors? Okay, so this app is available in six different languages, mm-hmm. English, Japanese, Korean, Simplified Chinese, traditional Chinese, and a German, so six. And how we promote it and get the message out about this app, we utilize our marketing teams around the world. Mm-hmm. They do social media. They did uh, a press release. And to date, we actually have over 3,000 downloads. Well, after Very this uh, show, you might get 3,001. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <clears throat> now, the question that I wanted to ask you, and it's great that HTA is using a local developing developer team to to put this app together i'm i'm kind of curious w- did this get put out as an rfp to others and did you you know was there like a a whole slew of respondees that you had to choose from and ikazo was the one that rose to the top ikazo is really uh, when we look at you know did our own research a local reputable firm mm-hmm. with extensive knowledge and experience in design interactive um apps and they have clients in uh, from the travel industry our industry um, and they have experience with multi-language design now, so perfect now I notice I noticed that the languages that you just uh, expressed were primarily Asian and there's one European German uh, is the focus more for the Asian visitor and do you see perhaps expanding the languages for more European uh, let's say potential downloads and visitors Potentially, yes, in the future. But say for Australia, they are English-speaking. Our biggest Mm -hmm. market is U.S. mainland and Canada. Mm -hmm. For international markets, Japan is the number one 
We mm-hmm. have about 1.56 million per year. Great, great. Now, um, I did download the uh, Go Hawaii app, <clears throat> and I wanted to explore it and just kind of, and I was very much taken by the fact that it has something called local mojis, and <laughs> I like the idea of stickers and unique ways of uh, depicting sort of local flora and fauna. So anyway, I, w- I went ahead and downloaded it. I tried uh, testing it out. There's a, there's a, um, the uh, local mojis actually go into your keyboard. Mm-hmm. And what I had noticed was that when I did load it into my, my keyboard, you go into your, you know, um, let's say your settings and you pick keyboard and you select uh, the Locomoji, which is part of the Go Hawaii app, it would give me a URL instead of the emoji. So Mike, what's going on here? So that was actually a uh, a uh, a mishap or a function of how the allow full access functionality works for keyboards. So part of creating a third party keyboard or just creating this type of functionality is that uh, the user has to essentially allow that functionality to be able to use uh, to be able to be used across uh, multiple other types of apps. And so that's why that particular feature had to be enabled. Um, so with that feature enabled, uh, you are actually able to copy. And paste those uh, emoji stickers directly into your um, uh, into your Omni bars so that you can paste them into any messaging app that you use. Uh, without that feature turned on, it just provides the URL okay. as kind of a fallback. Now, I had expected that, um, so I did do full access. I did get the uh, it loaded into my my uh, clipboard. The expectation though was that it would just show up in my sure, let's say sure. if I if I select it, you know, it would show up in my text bar. Why doesn't that happen without having to go through the cut and paste? Right. And that was a a concern even from the HTA team as well. When we originally discussed the idea, everybody wanted this kind of seamless experience that you have whenever you're utilizing any other third-party app. So when you're using Facebook Messenger or you're using Line or something like that and you see their emojis, they just go directly into the the, uh, input bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the functionality to provide a third-party keyboard that can be used across multiple apps is actually a new function in iOS. It was something that was released relatively uh, recently in iOS 8, and they've been kind of adding more support for it over the last couple of years. So it, there's very few apps that actually, uh, or very few keyboards that are even available right now. So this is something relatively new, and that's actually just a restriction that we've had on the iOS side. Uh, it's so new that even on the Android side, it's not even a feature that's available. So, um, But it, it, it's, it's, it's how it actually operates with even the, the most popular keyboard apps that are available. So Kimoji, uh, the Kim Kardashian emoji app, which was the number one app of 2015, made over a million dollars a minute at the height of its release, operates the exact same way. So oh, it's I a see. copy and paste directly into the input okay, field. Sounds good. Yeah. So, so JD, where can people find the, the Go Hawaii mobile app? Just go to the Google Play Store and Apple iTunes, both available there. Mm-hmm. Search by Go Hawaii. And it's free. It's free. So everybody, go to, just go on your uh, iTunes uh, app store, go Hawaii, do a search, find it, download it, check it out, and uh, let us know what you think about it. So JD and Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bert. Thank you, Bert, for having us. And of course, uh, we will take a short break, and uh, we'll be right back with Christy Wilcox, and we'll talk about creepy, crawly insects with fangs. And what created this world of venom and how did it evolve into this effective defense mechanism? We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions as part of the conversation. So please give us a call here 
That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. I am monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet me your questions at BiteMarks. This is BiteMarks Cafe. What first got me started was actually my parents. It was just daily morning routine when we were eating breakfast to listen to Morning Edition every day. Eventually, when I grew older, that became even more important to me. If I moved to a new location, I could always find NPR on the local station. And that would sort of be my link to that regular news stream. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. All right, here you go. Investing 101. Think long term. They may fail. That's the whole notion of taking a big risk. You want to be able to ensure that those companies have access to patient capital. I'm Kai Rizdal. Why Silicon Valley wants to see the return of the loyal investor. That is next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following Bitemark's Cafe. Support for Bitemark's Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And, of course, joining us today is researcher and author Christy Wilcox. Christy's new book, Venomous, How Earth, Earth's Deadliest Creatures Mastered Biochemistry, is getting rave reviews. She's also... A writer for science, the Science Sushi blog over at Discover Magazine. Of course, Christy got her PhD in 2014 in cellular and molecular biology from UH Manoa and works as a researcher with Angel Yanagihara, who we've had on the show as well. Of course, uh, how do the study of venoms help us find cures for diseases and ailments? And of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. That number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Thanks, Christy, for joining us. It's been a while since we last saw you. Oh, I know, I know. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, congratulations on the uh, publishing of your new book. Yeah, it's, it's that's exciting. It's so exciting. I, I can't even describe. I've been working on this book for more than three and a half years in some form or another. And and for me, it's just it's mind blowing to see it actually on shelves. Now, now, Christy, I want to know, how did you get involved with, you know, venomous creatures? And yeah, well, let's start with that. I mean, <laughs> you know, typically me included, you know, I, I, I see things that will tend to give you you know, sores and, and, and be, be, be painful, uh, I would tend to shy away from those. Well, I think it's it's really the fault of animals in general because I just love them all. And, and ever since I was a kid, I've been one of those kids that just loves to go out in nature and to, to play around with anything that is alive. And there's actually a really great interview. I did an interview when I was five years old to get into assets. And uh, there's a great, great quote from my interviewer written into the notes about how I bragged about liking to find dead geckos and open their mouths to look at their tongues. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, this is really, really, since I was a little kid, I I just loved animals of all kinds. And and so even things that were a little bit more dangerous or a little bit less furry never really was a problem for me. I just loved, loved them all. 
No, I, you know, I remember bringing out my magnifying glass and <laughs> seeing how much heat tolerance, you know, bugs might have, especially, <laughs> especially army worms. But, but as far as, uh, you know, getting really into the idea of these poisonous creatures, I mean, normally I would start to scurry away if I started to see a centipede. Well, I'm not the biggest fan of centipedes and certainly not having them on me without my permission. <laughs> but I think for a lot of people, we have sort of an unnatural or an, it's a natural fear, but we have this stronger than necessary fear of some of these animals, particularly something like snakes, which is probably written into our DNA, but we don't give them the appreciation that they deserve as valuable members of our ecological communities. Mm-hmm. Now, in in terms of, um, let's say, you know, three and a half years ago, you're still you're still here in Hawaii. I mean, you know, you've been here pretty much all your life. Uh, <laughs> what 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 uh, creatures sort of jump out at you that would be in this category of poisonous? Well, I'll I'll quickly correct you. They're not actually poisonous. They're venomous, and there okay, is a okay, difference okay, okay, okay. No, according to scientists. That's, that's good. So we look at poisons as things that you have to actively put into your own body mm-hmm. or so ingested or absorbed or inhaled whereas venoms are things that are stabbed into you so literally through some kind of wound it's a toxin that isn't introduced through some kind of wound so in hawaii we actually have less venomous animals than in a lot of other places right normally i mean in hawaii prior to any introduction of of you know creatures from afar there weren't there weren't any venomous creatures. Well, there aren't any as many on land. There's a few bugs, but mostly a lot of the biting and stinging insects weren't here. Mm-hmm. However, in the oceans, we got plenty. So we have a lot of jellies. We have uh-huh. um, anemones and we have cone snails. So we, we have plenty of venomous animals, venomous fish. We've got lots of different species of scorpion fish, a couple different lion fish. So we, we got plenty of venom. It's mm-hmm. just not on land. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, conducting your research, were you, I don't know, I mean, were you out there looking for the centipede or looking for that scorpion and trying to extract any of the venom from those little buggers? Well, not centipedes and scorpions, but for my PhD research, I was looking at the genetics and a little bit of the proteomics of lionfish venoms. Mm -hmm. And then now, working as a postdoc, I'm looking into jellyfish venoms under the tutelage of Angel Yana Gihara, so... I do get to go out there and collect venomous animals and take them in. Every month I'm out there helping out with the beach collections on Waikiki to collect the box jellies that come in. And I'll go out and collect Portuguese manowar from Kailua when the winds are up. Now, how, how, how would you go about collecting some of the venom from a box jelly? So what we do is we actually take the tentacles back to the lab. Um, in a special solution that makes it so their stinging cells don't fire. Mm -hmm. And we isolate, just by shaking them, the stinging cells from the tentacles. And then we're able to use a high-pressure chamber to essentially disrupt those stinging cells and cause them to fire and then collect the venom. So, you know, when you collect them, don't they normally, as a result of being agitated, decide that they want to you know, uh, uh, would trigger the sort of that mechanism? I mean, so they don't sting unless you actually come in direct contact with them, or they don't sting much anyway, unless you come in direct contact with them. So if you pick up a box jellyfish by its bell and its tentacles are dangling mm-hmm, and those mm-hmm. tentacles don't touch your arm, they're not going to be just shooting off venom. And that makes sense because venom is an expensive thing for the animal to produce. So they only want to use it when they think it's going to be necessary. Okay. So that's either to eat or just to defend themselves. Now, that's a, that's a good point. 
it's an expensive thing to to create. And so, what was it that actually got them to create it in the first place? Is it is it a obviously it's a, a defense mechanism? It could be something to capture food and you know make them survive, you know, for the next generation. What is it that is the strongest contributor to the fact that animals might evolve to have venom? Well, that's actually a really good question and one that we don't completely understand from a scientific perspective. We know that venom has evolved lots of different times over many different groups of animals. I mean, you have something like the cnidarians, the jellyfish and the corals. They're one of the earliest venomous groups. But even within uh, fish, it's potentially evolved as many as 18 different times. And we know that it's evolved in reptiles. It's evolved in mammals a few different times. And so what initially spurs them from being sort of non-toxic to toxic is really not well understood. I mean, it makes sense that these toxins are very useful. I mean, if you're trying to capture prey, being able to just sort of stab it and kill it really quickly mm-hmm. is obviously much easier than trying to wrestle it to the ground and hold it down and, and, and capture it. So you think of a snake, for example, without arms or legs. It, it's probably a lot easier to catch something with venom than it is even with constriction, which is the other sort of mechanism that snakes generally catch their prey with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why that happened? It's it's hard to say. I mean, what seems to be the general trend is you have an initial gene duplication that frees up essentially a potential toxin or what will eventually become a toxin to change and to mutate. And how it goes from that step to then becoming a very, very venomous animal, we don't really know. Right. And, you know, the the snake example is, is a perfect one because you have snakes that aren't venomous and you have snakes that are venomous. And they come out of the same family, you know, and genus. I mean, what would cause one to go the route of creating a very poisonous, well, I'm sorry, venomous <laughs> <laughs> defense mechanism and one, you know, let's say family not creating something. Right. And so what we know, what we do know is that these, these toxins are very useful. So we can understand how there would be potentially a selective pressure to keep them around. So if they're helping that that animal either survive against its own predators or helping it kill its prey, then we would expect them to keep it around. But that expense is high enough that the minute that pressure sort of slackens or, or something disappears, for example, there's species of sea snakes where they switched from eating fish to eating fish eggs, and fish eggs don't run. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so they didn't need that toxic venom to keep their prey or to catch their prey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once that happened, those guys lost their venom and they actually lost their, their venom glands. Everything related to it had, began to atrophy. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it it seems like it takes a lot of work to maintain toxicity and very, very little to ruin it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about toxicity and you talk about the, let's say, the, the, the gene combination that would contribute to that, uh, I would think that, you know, all of those species have it in them um, and something obviously triggers it to to start to produce, you know, those particular toxins. Uh, I'm just fascinated at the fact that, you know, this sort of biology has these capabilities and it's it's like whether it's, you know, whether it's plants or animals, there's this factory, this chemical factory that goes on inside that is coded in the genes 
mm-hmm. that will produce these very interesting chemicals. Well, when you think about it, a lot of these toxins are things that are necessary for your own survival. So you have enzymes in your body, for example, that chop up proteins because Mm -hmm. once your cells are done and and you have a dead cell, right, you want to be able to cut it into pieces and you want to be able to recycle all of those little bits and pieces and make a new cell. So you have these enzymes. You have what would otherwise be considered toxins or if you purified them and then injected them into something else would be toxins. But they're doing something important to you at the time. And so what these animals have done is taken these various enzymes and and other things that are doing something for their own bodies and weaponize them. Mm -hmm. And that's really incredible when you think about it. It's just, it's amazing. Now, I see some of the pictures that you have uh, in the the online or in in the, um, let's say, the book, and you have some very interesting pictures. Insects. Now, when you when we talk about let's say centipedes as an example, their primary uh, mechanism for their venom is to catch prey. With centipedes, that does appear to be the the main one. But with a lot of the insects, it's very variable. I mean, when you talk about something like bees and wasps, they're probably more defensive. Mm-hmm. Although there certainly are wasps, like the uh, parasitoid wasps, that use their venom in a very offensive way to. Uh, provide a willing meal for their next generation. Uh-huh, right. Um, really incredible stuff if you look into that. Um, so it, it can shift, and we see that happen a lot in venoms. For example, there was a recent study that found that cone snail venoms appeared to actually have begun as a defensive adaptation. So particularly the fish-hunting cone snails originally developed or, or continued to develop these toxins against uh, fish, to ward away potential predators of them. Mm -hmm. And then their toxins got so good at killing fish that they were able to switch and use those defensive toxins then to catch and kill fish as prey. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in terms of uh, uh, using it as a defense or using it as a a way to, let's say, catch your prey, um, it just seems interesting that when you have a reaction, let's say, to a centipede or a scorpion, and you have this natural defense because you think they're going to bite you, but they're actually using that mechanism for them to just survive and catch prey for them to, you know, them mm-hmm. to eat. So I would, um, you know, I would think that uh, our sort of relationship with these creatures might need to get a little reframed, understanding that, you know, what they're trying to do is just survive. Absolutely. I mean, many of these animals are not actively trying to eat people or even harm people. They're just trying to defend themselves. And there's some really great research, for example, on black widow spiders mm-hmm. by a friend of mine, David Nelson. He found that he basically had to pinch them. He, he couldn't just poke them. He couldn't just brush them. He had to really grab them to get them to bite and envenomate. And so the idea that they're really not trying to harm us. They want to use their venom to catch their prey. They don't want to bite us. Mm-hmm. They don't want to make us part of their their uh, sort of circle there. <laughs> they, they want to leave us alone, but we don't always give them that option. Now, there are brown and black widow spiders here in Hawaii, aren't there? I believe so. Uh-huh. Um, I Obviously, new, newer <laughs> introductions. Uh, introductions, not not native spiders. There are native spiders, but uh, they're, right, they're very not, different. Right, yeah. and but if you were to encounter one of these brown or black widow spiders, I mean, you should stay away because I mean, their reaction is quite severe. 
Um, don't mess with them too much, but we actually tend to villainize spiders a little more than they deserve. Like a lot of people, for example, if they find like a little mark on their body or a bump or a, a lesion, mm-hmm. they'll say, oh, I got a spider bite. I better go deal with this. Well, most of the time, most spiders can't actually penetrate you with their fangs. Their fangs are just not capable of actually injecting venom into human skin. We're too tough. And then even if you did get a spider bite, most of the time it won't cause a really major reaction. Some of the the really bad reactions to black widow spiders, they're actually extremely rare. Mm-hmm. And or or something like brown recluses, which we don't have in Hawaii to my knowledge. Uh, that those reactions, the really severe reactions are incredibly rare. You know, we're talking to uh, Christy Wilcox. She's a researcher and a an author. A recent uh, released uh, her book called Venomous and uh, we're talking about all the kinds of creatures out there that could perhaps cause some uncomfortable <laughs> conditions. <laughs> if you have any comments or questions, feel free to give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You got a bug question, give us a call. Now, you know, in terms of the like spiders, the house spider, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of large. They're almost like the size of a tarantula, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Are those... I mean, venomous in any way? They do have venom, but it's going to be such a mild bite. I mean, it's it's really not going to harm you. So would you go and catch it with your hand? I personally am not that great at handling spiders. I, I mean, I've had my fair share of tarantulas walking across my arm, but I'm just not very well versed in catching them. So I wouldn't personally catch them with my hand, but I would feel perfectly comfortable sort of doing this sort of cupping with a jar or something and and sliding a piece of paper to, if you wanted them to move. Keep in mind, those guys are eating some of the more nasty bugs that you don't want in your house. You know, things like, you know, mosquitoes or ticks or... You know, and I want to ask you a little bit about mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. Now, these critters cause irritation. And, of course, we hear a lot about mosquitoes and what they can transmit. But fleas, it's a, you know, an itch. Ticks, it's an itch. What is the idea behind? What is there a mechanism? Is there a defense mechanism that's going on that allows them to do this? You know, I'm not going to love a mosquito <laughs> anymore because it gave me an itch. But what, you know, what does that do? It just makes me want to kill it. So what's actually happening is that's the very minimal They've reduced the reaction that you've had to them. So when you think about a mosquito, right, what it actually does is it stabs its mouth parts into your flesh, mm-hmm. fishes around, finds a blood vessel, and starts sucking up your blood. And that would feel, you would feel that. That would not be a, a minor itch or a minor irritation. That would be like, a, oh, my goodness, what is this thing fishing around in my arm? And so what they have on board is actually a very interesting venom that allows them to essentially tamp down our immune response. And so it's basically quietly slipping in instead of making a lot of noise as far as our immune system is concerned. And so they have anticoagulants to keep that blood flowing. They have um, analgesics, aka painkillers. So they actually are injecting a painkiller into your body as they're trying to feed. 
So it, could you think of it like they have a, a something similar to like a Novocaine or some kind of that's, numbing? Yeah, that's the sort of the idea, right? So they, they know that they're going to have to go in there and be invasive and, and sort of like a dentist might. They, they kind of numb the area and, and do their best to make sure that nothing goes wrong mm-hmm. while they're there because they are a lot smaller than this. And yeah, you are going to want to kill them. So that when you see or feel a mosquito, your urge is to slap it. Mm-hmm. And so their their venom is attempting to prevent that response so that they can oh. survive and, and bite another day. No, that's the, uh, the, I mean, I'm really happy that you shared that because in and of itself, I mean, there is a lot of science that's going on behind the fact that they're stabbing you and trying to draw your blood. I mean, there, there, there's some very intricate science into the actual, uh, let's say, um, reducing the effect that you might feel as a result of getting stabbed by a mosquito. Exactly. And then once they leave, some of those compounds and bits of them are still left behind. And that's why you end up with that itch, because then your immune system is able to respond and does respond and and has the little reaction that gives you that itchy spot. But if you, I mean, up until then, they've actually turned off essentially locally your immune system Mm -hmm. to try to to sneak under the radar. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit more about how these things sort of evolve over time. And are we at a point where this is a, a very sophisticated example of how these creatures have leveraged this kind of uh, uh, biochemistry? want to hold that thought. We'll be, right after, we'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with Dr. Christy Wilcox about the world of venoms and how does this newfound knowledge reframe our relationship with these critters. I won't call them nasty critters, but they're critters. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments, and you can give us a call here, 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Next time in Studio 360, the great critic Clive James may write about Game of Thrones, but that doesn't mean he's just watching TV for fun. There's nothing more serious than entertainment. Entertainment is the carrier of values. Embrace binge-watching. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Friday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Anad Baniel, author of Kids Beyond Limits. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about miraculous breakthrough ways to help your child with special needs. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum, and of course we're talking to Christy Wilcox about the study of venoms and you can give us a call. That number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we are talking about mosquitoes and ticks and fleas and how they might actually evolve in order for them to more effectively do the thing that they do. And it seems fascinating to me that all of these, let's say, um, toxins or toxicity or the biochemistry that that gets them to where they are, whether it's a mosquito 
numbing that point that where they inject, you know, their their um, spirit to you to get the blood, or whether it's a let's say a uh, a rattlesnake, or I think you wrote about the platypus. <laughs> I mean, a lot yep. of these have evolved very sophisticated mechanisms and biochemistry. Are they at the peak of that evolution? And and what is it you know that is causing the 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 um, I guess the sophistication that's going on here. Well, I think it's difficult to ever say anything's at its peak of evolution. I mean, the idea that evolution has some sort of end product is is a bit trouble troublesome at mm-hmm, best. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what they have done is is honed these various toxins over years and years and years and years of, of evolution and, and generations and generations. And for many of these animals, the the diversity of the toxins reflects sort of the environment in which they've evolved them. And so you think about something that needs to potentially catch a prey item. If it had just one toxin and that prey item were able to then evolve some sort of defense against that toxin, then you wouldn't be able to keep catching that prey item with that toxin. Mm-hmm. So so their venoms end up having a lot of diversity and they end up having sort of synergistic components that work together to do various things. And and ultimately what you end up with is a very sophisticated system of of taking apart the most essential life-giving systems in an animal. I mean our blood, our our nerves. These are the, these are parts of our bodies that are very 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 essential to our constant function. And so if you dismantle something with a nerve, you're paralyzing someone or, or doing something really, really damaging. Well, and you said earlier, which is very interesting, that if a creature which was originally eating fish and using their venom to catch that fish now changes their diet to eat eggs and they no longer need to, let's say, venomize the eggs, <laughs> they will lose the ability to create that venom. So in an, in their evolution, they lost that capability and it was something that you know i guess from a environmental standpoint they didn't really need and just uh, uh, much like uh, in hawaii a lot of the species that are here whether the, you know plants or animals never really needed that level of toxicity so there weren't really a whole lot of plants that had thorns in fact mm-hmm. so uh, that's you know that's uh, an interesting part of this whole evolutionary process you know we want to welcome uh, glenn from hilo uh, for calling, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Right on. Hey, I got a question for your guest. Um, you know, I, I noticed some people um, aren't as affected by mosquito bites than others. Some people just break out in hives. Others, you know, just seem to they don't bother them. And also, like some people, like the mosquitoes don't hang around certain people, and mosquitoes tend to attract you know, to, you know, other other individuals. So just wondering what the chemistry or what's going on there. No, that's a great question, uh, Glenn, because in my case, uh, the, <laughs> the tendency is the mosquito will not fly around me. Now, I don't know whether that's the, you know, whether I eat kimchi or what. But I was about to say, you lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but it's totally opposite for my wife. So I, can, I might be standing in the yard. All the mosquitoes are on her. None of them are on me. And her reaction to mosquitoes is far worse than my reaction to mosquitoes. So, Christy, what's the what's going on here? So there's sort of two different things going on. One is what's attracting the mosquito and different 
chemical compounds that may emit attract mosquitoes. One of them is sort of universal carbon dioxide, right? So they, they essentially detect that there are animals around that they might be able to get something from because we are expelling air as we breathe. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to have take a canister of carbon dioxide and spray it, you'll, you'll see the mosquitoes start to mm. zero in on that. But there are other compounds and other sort of chemicals that we don't even really smell or, or sense from ourselves that attract them. And some people produce more of these chemicals than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what's happening on that side of it. What's happening on the other side has to do with your immune system. And our, all our immune systems are just a little bit different. We have little tweaks on various themes. And so some people have you know, antibodies, for example, that react really strongly and their, their bodies react really strongly when certain kinds of toxins. It's why some people have allergies, right? Mm-hmm. So you have um, genetic differences that lead to an overreaction to certain pollens or to certain things. And so, unfortunately, a lot of that is in your DNA or or can't be easily helped. Um, some of it can be, and some of it has to do with sort of exposure and different ages. And there's there's various ways we can somewhat modulate it, but a lot of it's just how you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you know, in some cases of allergies, I mean, some of the ways of getting the body more let's say acclimated or tuned to an allergy is to perhaps introduce it on a on a let's say gradual level and and then you know maybe the body will build up some strength against it does that necessarily work with mosquito bites uh it might i'm not really sure i i haven't haven't seen anyone ever try to sort think, of yeah, yeah. like in, <laughs> intentional mosquito exposure yeah i know it'd be a hard process to go through uh but What's also interesting, uh, Christy, in terms of your work is that when you start to look at these venoms and how it has that particular effect on the body, what are you learning in terms of how this might benefit us? So what these toxins do is is very, very specifically turn on or off various physiological pathways in our body. So, you know, a neurotoxin from something like a cobra might target an ion channel and it shuts it down, which means that that nerve can't send signals and that's how it captures its prey by paralyzing them. But in many cases, either the toxins aren't intended for human bodies or if they are intended for, for mammalian bodies, they're still very interestingly specific and that can actually teach us about how our bodies work. And so there was like, for example, there was a really great paper that came out uh, just a few months ago uh, about tarantula venom toxins. And what they found were these these tarantula venom toxins were turning on pain neurons through an ion channel that we didn't even know existed really in pain neurons. I mean, we knew it existed, but we didn't think it really contributed to pain. And so they found this whole new pathway for making pain happen. And that is going to lead, hopefully, to whole new drugs to make pain stop. And so in many of these cases, either the toxin itself or a tweak of the toxin is able to turn off different pathways in our body or, or turn on ones that are missing. Mm-hmm. And so we see that with a lot of the drugs. For example, there's um, Bieta, which is essentially mimicking a hormone that we naturally have in our bodies, but it allows people with type 2 diabetes to regulate their insulin. 
and it works better than the one we have in our bodies because it lasts longer based on its chemical structure instead of just disappearing within an hour. And so we get these these toxins that can then be turned and tweaked into therapeutics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you think about most pharmaceuticals, they actually are toxins. I mean, you can overdose on them, but more importantly, they're doing something to your body at a very, very low dose. And it's a matter of taking those venoms, peeling apart the various different toxins, and finding the one that does something we want instead of one thing we don't want, Mm -hmm. and then using that in a therapeutic manner. Now, you mentioned diabetes, and I think another one that you mentioned is Alzheimer's. I mean, what is it that, uh, what venoms are you researching that perhaps could contribute to uh, maybe lessening the impact of Alzheimer's? Well, there's all kinds of, I mean, what what's really fascinating about venoms is that they they have these actions on pathways that right now we don't have good drugs to target. Things like neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's, things like even HIV or other diseases that are currently unkillable mm-hmm. or un- uncurable. So they, they're able to do what our current drugs can't. And if we can find the right dose and the right delivery method, we can turn some of these toxic things into life-saving drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is that something that you are working on currently, or is this something that you just research as a result of the, the book? This is this is not really my specific field of research. Right now, what I'm more looking at is, is how these venoms, particularly from box jellies, mm-hmm. work, um, the physiological mechanisms by which they cause all their harm, and what we can do to treat them and prevent... You know, right. I mean, and that's the part, that's you know the, a lot of the work that uh, Angel Yanagihara <laughs> is doing. So it revolves around a lot of the the, the box jellies and, uh, but basically ocean creatures, right? I mean, right. Uh, and in terms of um, you know getting more into let's say the impact of corals. I mean, do you guys go out and and look at the how corals might impact you from a toxicity standpoint? Uh, we haven't, to my knowledge, recently done a whole lot of work on something like corals. We we largely focus on animals that are currently causing sort of a noticeable human health impact. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's why we look at box jellies, because box jellies are actually one of the deadliest marine organisms. They kill more people every year than sharks. Um, handedly kill more people every year. Kill than, people? I mean, in what way would they kill you if you got stung by a box jelly? So Cardiac bo- arrest or... Absolutely. So box jellies can cause uh, essentially your entire body to shut down uh, and they can do it very, very quickly. So not so much here in uh, Hawaii, although the box jellies we have here can be lethal. But in places like Australia, they have these really large box jellies um, in the Philippines and in Thailand that people, particularly kids or or others who are are smaller bodied, uh, can die within five minutes or less of getting stung. I was just about to ask you that because, you know, in terms of Hawaii, we always get the box jelly announcements. I think they coincide with the moon. Mm-hmm. But I never hear about anybody dying from box jellies here. And that's pri- pri- primarily because of the fact that they're a different species or smaller than the ones that might be found in Australia. Yeah, they are a different species. And they, they can be lethal. If you get stung with a lot of tentacle from these guys, there's definitely life-threatening conditions that can result. But... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they aren't as toxic and as large as some of these larger, for example, Chironix fleckeri, which is in Australia, is this, it can be the size of a basketball for the bell of it and have these, 
you know, meters and meters and meters of tentacles. And it has the ones we have here have four tentacles, one from each corner of their bell. These guys have, I think, 60 from each corner. So we're talking about a lot more tentacle, a lot more stinging cells and a lot more potential for that lethal lethal dose. But that said, there are also box jellies that are the size of a matchstick that can kill you. So (laughs) there are there are a lot of deadly box jellies out there and they have some similar and different mechanisms by which they kill you. Now, now the matchstick box jelly, is that found in Hawaii? I don't know if that's... The particular species that I'm thinking of isn't, but the the one we're, that is here, um, Alatina alata, can cause the same syndrome, which is lethal, which is Irukandji syndrome. And what happens is essentially four to 48 hours after you get stung, even if you're feeling fine up until then, you get this feeling of impending doom heart rate and blood pressure start to increase and and you end up having potentially life-threatening respiratory distress or even um, people have died from cerebral hemorrhages from spikes in blood pressure. My heart rate is going up just you telling me this. <laughs> now, what about the uh, Portuguese man of war? I mean, wh- which is more lethal, the box jelly or Portuguese man of war? Box jelly by far. Portuguese man of war, I think there have been two or three recorded cases throughout history of someone dying from a Portuguese man of war sting. But they're very, very, very rarely that serious. Most of the time, it's just really, really painful. And you've got that that painful welts that yeah, last. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a few of those. <laughs> now, I'm curious, with all your studies and research and looking at the benefit, potential benefit of some of these venoms, should we be looking at these creatures with sort of new set of eyes? I think so. I, I think these are animals that we love to hate. But if we really appreciate what they do in their ecos- ecologically in the different ecosystems and their potential, that they have this essentially library of evolutionary knowledge that we're only beginning to tap into and understand. We don't know what's in most venoms. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vast majority of venoms have never been studied. So when you think about all of those little molecules, all of those little tweaks on, on themes that could be in there and all the things they could potentially treat, I mean, I think it's absolutely imperative that we keep them around, if only for, for selfish reasons. Now, do you um, have a, a, an idea as far as the part two of this book, or did you pretty much uh, cover everything that you wanted to cover in terms of venoms in this book? Um, it's, it's, I tried to be pretty comprehensive. I definitely think, personally, of course, I think any of the chapters could be a whole book by itself. But I, I think what would be more interesting next might be something on the other kinds of toxins in nature. So we'll see. Oh, very good. So where can people find uh, this book, Venomous? So it is online, on sa- in sale, everywhere that books are sold. So, you know, your Amazon.com. Um, I saw some copies at the local Barnes & Noble. So you can certainly get it at, at major booksellers worldwide. And if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, I am at Nerdy Christy. Nerdy Christy. I love <laughs> that uh, that Twitter handle. Of course, Christy Wilcox is a PhD researcher over at the University of Hawaii, and her latest book is called Venomous, <clears throat> and we put it up on our show notes later on. And, of course, you can find it at your favorite bookstore. You w- I want to thank you, Christy, for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really fun. And, of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marsh Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the intersection of art and science and talk about artists in residence. If you have any part of this edition If you miss any part of this edition, of course, you can find the podcast on tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. Of course, you can find us on Twitter. 
I'm at Bite Marks. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. We leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's Porter Robinson and Madion and a song called Shelter. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.